Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Charles, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Ryan. Charles, why don't we start with a bit about your background? Where do you consider home and why? Well, right now we live in Asheville, North Carolina. We've been here for three years. It's starting to feel like home a bit. I also have a lot of roots in Pennsylvania where there's a lot of people who are really dear. You know, it takes a while to develop friendships. Well, usually it takes a while to develop friendships where you could just ask that person to do anything for you. That level of community takes a while to grow. And I don't think we really quite have it here yet in North Carolina. So I guess in that sense, I don't feel fully at home quite yet. Yeah, it seems like a lot of my friends have, it seems like there's this like power centers, like, you know, San Francisco Bay Area and Asheville, Hudson Valley. Like, I'm not sure why, but there's like these places that draw. Right. One of these kind of, they almost become like a cliche. Yeah. Ashland, Oregon, Portland, maybe Vermont. Um, And sometimes they're so good that so many people move here that it, starts to de- deteriorate like Asheville is now becoming beer city you know because and property values are going up and all of the, the well not all but a lot of the really awesome people can't afford to live here anymore yes one of my questions around your background is have you had any formal spiritual meditation mindfulness training and if so do you practice anything along those lines today i don't have any really impressive practice or spiritual credentials. I mean, you know, I do some Kundalini yoga. I do some pretty unusual form of Qigong, but it's not like, you know, I'm someone who has an especially impressive practice. Like, I don't think you could explain very much about me by saying, well, he has this amazing spiritual practice where he wakes up at 4 a.m. every day and does three hours of meditation. And then, you know, like, no, I'm pretty normal. Yeah, I wasn't sure because you're a pretty awesome guy. So, Sometimes I've got to know what's behind the awesomeness. Yeah, I don't think I'm really that extraordinary. Um, it's just a matter of where uh, fate and circumstance has put me. So it's put me in a position where I'm doing a certain kind of work and saying a certain kind of thing. And it could have just as easily put me in a position where I was, you know, playing competitive chess or a hockey player or whatever. But just the, not that I ever played hockey. I used to play chess. But, you know the times invite us into the roles that are necessary for the times according to whatever constellation of gifts that we have. So I'm just here doing what I'm doing. Did you ever, when you were younger, did you ever think I will grow up to be X or was that, was that on your radar? No, I was in a mist of confusion when I was growing up. There was nothing that really appealed to me. I like the mist, the mist of confusion metaphor. It's a good one. You, you've spoken in some of your books and your talks about this idea. When you were younger, you noticed something was different. You know, the, the story of you, you work hard, you go to school, you get a job, you bootstrap it, things will work out, right. you'll be okay. And yeah, all, the things, all the things that you're supposed to do to be successful, uh, really it's to be a good boy, to be a normal and admirable member of society, the story of here's what a good life looks like, like that wasn't very believable 
to me growing up. And I wasn't really offered much of an alternative, so I guess I kind of had no choice but to half-heartedly buy into it. But I never had enough motivation to join that program and to enact that story to, to overcome my resistance to it. So, I mean, this probably was true of many, many people in my generation, kind of half in, half out, going through the motions, um, doing just enough to get by, but no real enthusiasm for it. And I think maybe I had even less enthusiasm than most people from my socioeconomic status. Everyone else was, uh, you know, volunteering for yearbook, you know, or going to the governor's school or doing things to build their resume and to set themselves along a success trajectory. And it wasn't that I consciously rejected that. I mean, I kind of consciously, I kind of, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do, but I just couldn't make myself do it. And at the time, that seemed like a personality flaw. And even to this day, people who can't get up in the morning and do what needs to be done, it seems like they have a personality flaw called laziness. But you could also look at it as a form of unconscious rebellion, the program of normal. And how did, how did you start to realize that the economy itself, and to a greater extent, the separateness that we feel to each other, how, how did you start to connect like the economy and that separateness to like a lot of the problems in the world? Yeah, the first, well, the first step was simply to realize, as many people do, that when you, know, when you look into uh, the world's serious problems and ask, why is this happening? Very often you get down to, because somebody's making money off it. Why are we cutting down the rainforest? Why are we bottom trawling the oceans and destroying the coral reefs? Why are millions of people in this country paying 70 or 80% of their income for rent? Like you get down to the, well, somebody's making money that way. So that's, that's one step. But then really the deeper insights crystallized when I moved back to this country in my early 30s. I'd been living in Taiwan and tried to establish myself in suburbia and had these expectations that it was going to be like it was when I was a kid. Packs of kids running around playing wiffle ball, stick ball, soccer in the, in the neighborhood, riding bikes, etc. And there wasn't any of that. Everybody was indoors watching TV on video games. And none of the neighbors knew each other anymore. Like when I was a kid, we had neighborhood volleyball games, neighborhood cookouts. Everybody came. Everybody knew who, who was in every, every house and, and what was going on with that family. And there was none of that. And I realized that what had happened is that community had been strip mined and sold off and converted into professional services and, and products. So instead of kids playing together, they were all paying for play in some sense. Instead of neighbors telling stories about each other, they were purchasing stories that we call media. Instead of getting together and playing games, we were watching things on TV, consuming. Like sports had become fully a consumer activity. Same with music, same with, with entertainment. I mean, everything. So I began to dig a bit deeper and, and or childcare, you know, like there wasn't such a thing really, as childcare when I was a kid. I mean, there was a little bit, but, but it was rare that you would send your two-year-old to a daycare center. Yeah, so that was the, the entree for me, was, this, was seeing how the community had disintegrated, even just over my lifetime, and even more looking back historically. Yeah, so that's, that's what got me really interested in economics, especially as the financial, the real estate bubble was inflating at that time. 
And what were some of the solutions you were starting to see that were maybe emergent to sort of counteract that the, the sort of growing separateness and consumerism? Oh, I wouldn't even say that the solutions were emergent at that time, or certainly not emergent, well, maybe in the form of tiny, tiny little seedlings. But, you know, there was the voluntary simplicity movement. There's the eco-village movement, intentional communities, uh, local currencies, things like that. People trying to forge an alternative to the dominant system. But it's hard to do that when you are immersed in the dominant system. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of these projects are kind of suggestions of the future rather than necessarily alternatives. They're suggestions of an alternative. Uh, and there's maybe some exceptions to that. There's some communities that really are kind of outside the matrix and, you know, really have community. But generally speaking, you know, most of the eco-villages become, either they become kind of like suburbs, you know, with maybe a community dinner once a week, you know, and some solar panels and stuff, or they are more ambitious and they end up getting torn apart by social tensions of various sorts. But there's some that do make an ex a successful experiment of a radically alternative way of being together. Not a lot, though. And one of the ideas you've talked about in your books is, you know, folks often feel that the economy or that they're, they're sort of like, we want to fix things and we need to just scale up solutions. Like we just need massive, you know, we need a billion people using this platform. Like maybe it's like a tech platform that's supposed to solve challenges. And you've talked a lot about the idea of smaller scale, smaller things being just as valuable or even more valuable than like some gigantic solution to a challenge. Can you speak to folks around your ideas around that? Yeah, there's a few things mixed into that. I mean, we could go to cryptocurrencies, we could go, you know, digital currencies in general. And there's a lot of this in the uh, environmental movement now. There's amazing projects happening today around permaculture, regeneration, ecological healing. And most of these are very small. They're, you know, somebody's 50 acre farm somewhere that's doing incredible things. And, you know, compared to the dominant agricultural system, it's a drop in the bucket. So people are wanting to scale it up. The problem, though, is that scale is basically an industrial activity. To scale something up, you standardize it, and then you can apply it cookie-cutter fashion uh, on a large scale. But the kind of things that we need to do may not be of that formulaic nature that you can say, okay, we've done it right on this farm. So let's take these same practices, create, you know, a handbook and, or a set of procedures. And now you don't need to have your own learning curve, but you can just apply what I've learned to that farm and do the same thing I did without real understanding. Kind of like the assembly line worker here, do this, 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 and this, follow these instructions, and we can scale up our production process. That doesn't really work with things like regenerative agriculture, because Fundamentally, it's about an intimate relationship to the land, uh, a attitude of humility and listening that allows you to understand what exactly needs to happen here. Now, there are certainly a lot of learnings that do translate, but you can't just. But it's it's really what you want to scale up is the is the understanding and even like the posture of humility that gives birth to the understanding. Like that's what needs to be transmitted or scaled, not so much any particular um, set of practices, although there are many practices that, that can be um, uh, used, on a, um, used widely, but even so, they, they need to be um, 
adapted uh, to a different place. So scale isn't necessarily the right way of thinking about it. Maybe virality is a little bit better, or maybe there isn't uh, a perfect word for it. But somehow, I mean, what, you know, the, the framework that I work in is that of story and narrative. So enrolling people in a different story of how to do this thing called life, uh, a different story of what is normal, what is appropriate, what is right, or a different story of who we are and why we're here. When we accept that different story, then everything from agriculture to medicine to business to education changes, even if from the kind of the bottom up. Now, it doesn't mean that we're you know, ignoring the level of policies and practices, but when that bottom up change happens, then the policies and practices that we were trying so hard to persuade people of become obvious. Oh yeah, of course. Like people are readily accepting of uh, like no-till organic agriculture when they, all, when, they, when they understand that the soil is a living being and that our role is a, a co-creative um, steward maybe of the soil or that our that like the story of, of why we do agriculture or how success happens in agriculture changes from extraction and profit maximization to mutuality um, and understanding, yeah, what's good for the soil is good for me. We're all in this together. I am a servant of the land. Like that, from that story, then the practices are quite natural. Yeah, of course I want to do that. Of course I want to um, rebuild the water table. Is there anything, movements, uh, you know, practices, examples that you're particularly excited about right now as, um, you know, what, what, what are you, what are you really getting energized by right now? Well, you know, I'm writing this book on climate change. It's almost done now. And out of all of the things I've looked into really, I think the most important are, um, regenerative agriculture, which I don't know if how many people are familiar with that term now. Um, you know, terms go in and out of style, like permaculture was the favorite term. And now we're talking about practices that regenerate the health of soil and water and the biodiversity on the land. Um, and, and so that, and especially that um, restore the health of the water cycle. A lot of the things that we blame on climate change are actually caused by the disruption of the hydrological cycle, the um, deforestation and agricultural practices that prevent the land <clears throat> from really soaking up the water anymore and letting it replenish groundwater and come up as springs. Uh, you know, when you do that the, and the water all runs off, you end up with floods when that happens. And then you end up with droughts afterwards because the water hasn't stayed there. It's run right back into the ocean. Um, anyway, like really, really long story short, that is, I think, the most important thing that we should be doing right now. Much more important than controlling emissions even. From the carbon frame, actually, like it makes sense because these regenerative practices can sequester huge amounts of carbon. I am not primarily working in the carbon frame. Um, I think that if we, if we want to focus on one substance, it should be water, uh, not carbon, but secondly is soil, and the two are so 
intimately connected that you really can't speak of one without speaking of the other. But that would be the, the thing like that, like if I'm talking to say a philanthropist or something like that, uh, or even an impact investor, and they say, well, what's the one thing that I could put money into? First, I say, that's the wrong question. Um, really listen to what calls to you, calls to your care. But if you make me answer that question, I would say it would be converting our land to regenerative practices, which could mean making land accessible to idealistic young farmers uh, or older farmers who want to convert, but they're up to their ears in debt. They need some kind of subsidy, um, some kind of grant or something to make that conversion. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I would put first if I had to pick one. Are you familiar with Project Drawdown by Paul Hawkins? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. My business partner, Kevin Bayouk, uh, is the senior financial analyst on that project. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we've had Paul on the show, but I love you speaking to that as like something that's really energizing you right now because I think it's, it's spreading, that idea of regenerative ag to solve challenges. Right. Um, and, you know, in your new book, I, is one of the things that you talk about um, – because as we, as we all know, it's not just like the data that motivates people, right? So do you talk about climate in terms of like the psychological as well as the sort of like, you know, the solutions or the potential, like how to yeah. sort of balance the new book? In a way, you can see climate change as kind of um, symptomatic of a deeper problem. And on some level, we understand that the planetary atmospheric climate cannot be healthy if the social climate, the political climate, the psychic climate isn't healthy. Even though it's hard to say, like, suppose what you really care about, suppose I had that conversation with the philanthropist and, and he said, well, what I really care about is the homeless, the plight of the homeless. So I want to, um, you know, create a new kind of homeless shelter and, and I want to fund uh, social enterprises that, that bring the homeless back into society and, give them the healing and the therapy that they might need, et cetera, et cetera. I want to do that. And then the climate warrior comes along and says, are you kidding me? I mean, once we solve the climate crisis, then maybe you can do that. But I mean, come on, when we have 50 feet of sea level rise, that's not going to make a difference what you've done. In fact, you're making the problem worse because these homeless people right now, they're scavengers. But if you bring them back into society, they're going to become producing and consuming members of society. That's what Ebenezer Scrooge would say. And there's something in me that, that just rejects that, that kind of instrumentalist thinking, that kind of uh, quantitative, numerical, linear thinking. That part of me knows that this person is helping the problem too, that, that, any heal, that healing on any level in any domain adds to a universal field of healing that brings healing to every domain. It's hard to make a linear, rational argument how uh, addressing homelessness or mass incarceration or pesticides, even even environmental issues, how that's going to make a difference uh, as far as global warming is concerned. And that is disturbing to me, the way that global warming kind of sucks the air out of the room for other issues, including environmental issues. Not only that, it's not only just disturbing, but this... Um, deprioritization of other issues actually makes the problem worse. It's hard for, again, I can't say how homelessness is making climate change worse, but I can say 
how things like uh, pesticides or whaling like, um, or overfishing is exacerbating climate change because we're just learning how Earth as a living system biologically regulates the climate. It's not just a matter of kind of mechanical inputs and outputs and greenhouse gases and, and albedo and like these mechanical things. The planet, just like the human body, can maintain um, more or less stable conditions. Certainly high levels of greenhouse gases put added stress on the Gaian body, but the, the Gaian body is under tremendous stress already. The, like something like half like right today, we have something like half the number of trees that we had before civilization. Like we've destroyed half of them. We have less than 10% the number of whales. We have like, like again, some like small fraction of the total amount of fish biomass we, have, we used to have. Uh, recently studies came out about the decline in insect biomass, something like an 80% decline in flying insects over the last 30 years. Have you noticed less bug splatter than when you were a kid on the windshield. Everyone I talked to is like, oh yeah, oh my God. Like it used to be like clouds of insects. You used to have to like clear your windshield. No, not anymore. I thought it was my imagination until I read this study and began talking to people. So these, these kinds of um, ecological ruin will doom the planet even if we cut greenhouse emissions to zero. And if we continue to degrade the biosphere this way, then it won't be able to handle higher levels of greenhouse gases. If we had a really healthy biosphere, healthy ecosystems, healthy grasslands, forests, then I don't think that greenhouse gases would be much of a problem. They might even be good. They might even forestall the next ice age, which is due any time, you know? But that's a moot question when we've destroyed half the seagrass meadows, two-thirds of the mangrove swamps, half the rainforest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm making these figures up. Actually, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's appalling. Um, like, I don't know. I mean, I can go on and on. Whales and fish uh, provide something like half of the layer mixing of the oceans that bring up nutrients from underneath and bring cool water up to the surface. So even without greenhouse gases, you're still going to get the warming of the surface layers of the ocean and coral reef bleaching if you don't have a rich and biodiverse marine system. So anyway, you got me on, on kind of one of my rants here, but the book is critical of the dominant narrative of climate change, not necessarily saying, oh, they've got it wrong, it's a hoax or anything like that, um, but that the emphasis is not in the right place. And that's where, I, um, where my views coincide to some extent with Paul Hawken and some of the other um, climate scientists. Like, at least we agree that, that regenerative agriculture is a super important response. There might be things that, that we don't see eye to eye on, but that's something that, that, like, if there's one thing that we could do, we gotta, ramp that up and support it financially uh, on a massive scale, like all over the place. I mean, I think something that lends itself to what you're saying around, like we don't actually know all the connections is, you know, in Project Drawdown, they found that, you know, educating women and girls led to reduction in 
greenhouse gases. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, that, that one, I'm, I'm a little... You're skeptical of that one? Yeah, really, I mean, what they're saying, what, what, uh, yeah, they're basing that on the lower birth rates that result yeah. from, that seem to result from education. Mm-hmm. Um, although education is actually kind of a proxy for uh, uh, economic development, which coincides with lower death rates, lower mortality rates, especially among infants and children. And I think you can make a pretty strong argument that um, fertility rates decline as um, following a decline in mortality and an increase in life expectancy. Basically, if, if you're living in a society where half or two-thirds of the children die before they grow up, you're going to have large families. Uh, cult- like the cultural system is going to encourage and accommodate large families. And those cultural habits, they have some momentum that persists a generation or two into the era of, of rising life expectancy and lower death rates. But eventually, everywhere um, where, I mean, this, this happened in, yeah, when the death rates decline and infant mortality declines, then family sizes begin to shrink too. So I think this is something that's happening already. Um, and yeah, like educating girls, I mean, certainly if we are in a system of education where the traditional ways of passing knowledge on have disintegrated, then, and boys are getting educated, then yeah, a girl should be educated too. But the basic premise here is that um, traditional and indigenous uh, institutions of knowledge should be supplanted by the modern Western school. That is questionable. So you take, um, the kids maybe who had been learning uh, how to herd goats in a traditional sustainable way and grow crops and take care of the soil and, and recognize all of the songs of the birds and the uses of the herbs and how to take care of them and how to take care of the forest, like all that knowledge, sorry, you have to go to school instead and learn the state capitals, you know, and learn whatever you learn in school and I'm not sure what it would be in you know, developing countries, but, but you learn um, a different narrative that divorces you from the matrix of place, ecology, and culture that you had been living in and makes you, you know, a global citizen, not a citizen uh, of a place. So that developmentalist program, I think, is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Bring us I, all into yeah. the global monoculture. I, yeah, I see what you're... It's, it's not just education is the solution there's some big asterisks around like types of education and, yeah. yeah and what i'm saying is is we have to really rethink everything that climate change is a symptom of our civilization's entire way of being and that includes its technology its money system its agricultural system its medical system its educational system like everything that we take for granted as normal needs to come under examination not that we'll necessarily discard everything, discard literacy, discard science, discard technology, discard computers. Not necessarily, no. But we can no longer take for granted the superiority of our, of our ways, the superiority of our institutions. Uh, we can no longer just arrogantly assume that everyone else in the world should be like us. That development means that everyone in China gets you know, two cars and a single family house and drives around on highways everywhere. 
Like that may not be the, the best mode of development anymore. And aren't there other capacities that you and I and many people we know seek to develop and aspire to that may not have, that may not fit at all into the story that we grew up in that told us what's valuable, important, and real? Like, what do you aspire to? Would you rather develop your wealth and investments? Or would you rather develop your consciousness, your sensitivity to subtle energies? Would you rather live in a McMansion with a big yacht for the weekends? Or would you rather live in uh, a small house, beautifully designed according to sacred ge geometric principles, surrounded by magical gardens where the birds just love to come and sometimes they even sit on your hand and you, like, which one would you rather have? Like, what is development calling us toward today? Not necessarily toward growth, not necessarily toward more and more of the things that we can measure. And that means that our economic system is becoming obsolete, our financial system, because it demands and encourages and necessitates endless growth. You know, one of the things that I think you experience and many folks who talk about this, you know, you know, fish being exterminated, the soil health, um, the financial system, it leaves people the feeling like just like oh, they want to go in a shell and hide and like this feeling of like overwhelm and guilt. Um, how do you coax someone out of there? <laughs> you know, is it, uh, you know, like, I, I, and you also have a great point around urgency. A lot of people say like the world is burning. We need to be right. like doing everything. And sort of there's this like sense of like guilt plus like running around with their heads cut off trying to right. fix something. Like how do you coax people? No, out? So the, the important thing to realize is that we don't know how this world works. There's no way to know what action is going to have like a gigantic macro impact and what is, what is not. Things that, that our current understanding would tell us have a big scalable impact may just make big waves on the surface without changing any of the deep currents. So to take another climate change example, okay, we've got to get carbon down as fast as possible. So the, to do that, that means that you have to use the solution sets that are in front of you right now. And what that has meant has been a lot of big hydro projects and biofuels plantations that are incredibly damaging ecologically. From the living systems understanding, of the planet and of climate change, these are actually doing more harm than good. When you, you know, cut down virgin forests and plant rapidly growing trees to make biofuels, for example. Like right now, there's gigantic land grabs happening all across Africa, South America, where indigenous peasants are getting kicked off the land, you know, virgin, I mean, it's, it's you know, virgin uh, old growth forests and, and things are getting destroyed, biodiversity is getting destroyed. Um, so the kind of way of thinking that urgency leads us to and may not be useful because so what, yeah so what i'm saying is that given that how do you know what to do how do you know what's going to be the most impactful and the most useful on a 500 year time scale we have to navigate according to something else um, according to a different um, impulse and according to a different story, the impulse coming from, I would say, from the heart, like what would happen if you guided, if you were guided simply by what you care about the most and what's the most beautiful to you right now? It might lead you to do things 
that like I gave the example before of, of the homeless, you know, or incarceration or something like that. Uh, it might even be narrower still. It might be like what you really care about is raising your child in the most beautiful way you can um, or taking care of your grandmother or, or taking care of a person who's come into your life who's uh, disabled or autistic. And, and maybe you, you devote enormous energy and it's just one person. So the mind in the story of separation that we live in does not have a calculus that validates those kinds of activities. However, in a different story, the story of interbeing, as I like to call it, using Thich Nhat Hanh's word, um, these invisible actions are actually very powerful because, or using uh, Rupert Sheldrake's concept of morphic resonance, it says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change that allows the same change to happen more easily somewhere else. So even, so, you know, if you are acting from kindness, compassion, generosity, and love, then even if no one ever finds out about it and you can't think of a way to scale it up, still, it changes the field here on earth. I think that, <laughs> yeah, there's an article recently by Steven Pinker in the Wall Street Journal about how things are getting better and better, fewer and fewer homicides, less and less war. And he attributed that to reason and science. I had a different uh, explanation for this phenomenon, which is that um, our consciousness is indeed changing. The spiritual teachings of the last several thousand years are blossoming now, and we are actually becoming, even though it doesn't look that way sometimes, looking at politics, we are actually becoming more empathic, more compassionate, more generous, um, even more polite. I noticed this just in public. I noticed this going through TSA at the airport. That's just because you're living in the South right now. It's like very polite. No, <laughs> no everywhere I go, um, people just seem a little bit more aware, you know, a little bit more willing to take responsibility for their judgments. A little bit, you know, like there's this awareness that the things that you judge other people for, that might be a projection. Maybe it's about me. People have been watching, you know, whatever, Dr. Phil, you know, and Oprah, and like these concepts are, are, are penetrating now. And people have just a little bit more peace in their hearts. That makes, and now there's still a lot of war in this world. But I feel like, I don't know, 20 years ago, we would have invaded Syria. But something's stopping that from happening. So anyway, yeah, what I'm saying is that because we don't really know how this world works, and you have no idea how one small action is going to ripple out and, and reverberate and tug on invisible threads of causality that crop up in distant places. Because of that, we can trust our guidance and trust ourselves to that, yeah, it's okay to just do what you really care about. It's going to change the psychic climate. It's going to change the social climate. It's going to change the political climate. And that's going to change the atmospheric climate. And that it validates the kind of things that don't get celebrated. You know, if you're out there campaigning, you know, for some big cause, whether it's climate change or something else, then there's going to be a lot of people who are going to tell you, yeah, you're doing an important thing. You're going to be in a story that says you are important. You are valid. You are worthy. You are good. But if you are uh, just say you're say a hippie mom using attachment parenting uh, and, and, really trying hard to raise her children 
um, without shaming, without conditional rewards and punishments, like, you know, to, to um, soften that program of control that has conditioned our society to exercise domination over others and over nature. And you're just doing that with your family. No one's going to celebrate that. You're not going to be told by the dominant story that you are doing something really important. All you have is your inner knowing that, yeah, this is the most important thing I could be doing right now. I'm having a big impact. It may not be easily visible through our conditioned lens, but there are, I was going to say, invisible beings taking notes. You are changing the morphic field by doing those things. And what, what are your children going to be capable of? when they're not conditioned to self-rejection, conditioned to struggling against themselves? And what are their children going to be capable of when they pass on even less of our traumatized conditioning to the next generation? And what's that going to be like in five generations? Because I think that the um, crisis that is manifesting as climate change in our perception goes that deep. It's, it's, the result of an entire way of life and way of seeing that's hundreds or thousands of years old. And it's not going to be undone simply by switching to a different fuel stock to power industrial civilization. It's way deeper than that. And yeah, there are short-term things that are worth doing and that will call to your care, depending on who you are and where you are in your life. But that's not the only valid and important thing that we have to do. One of the things I've struggled with is I was listening to a podcast with Ken Wilber talking about part of the emergence of Trump and like the sort of going back to the, the sort of ultra conservative racist uprising of, of late has been this reaction against the sort of 60s green, the, the sort of, he called it the bastardization of the, 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 the green sort of, and, and sort of spiral dynamics. I'm getting kind of nerdy for yeah. folks, but um, you know, he says people just need to realize that, you know, Trump is just a reaction to green. And so we need to sort of step back and know that. And I sometimes feel like white people, especially white men, it's fine for us to say, you guys, we just need to know that it's going to be okay. Like, because we're not the ones getting pulled out of police cars and shot. And so sometimes I feel like in this community, in the sort of left, it's like, just need to reframe Trump and reframe it. And like, but it's fine because we're not the ones getting attacked and beaten. So I was kind of, when Wilbur was saying that, I was like, but I see what you're saying. And it's fine for us to wait 500 years because we're not the ones sort of getting the brunt of it. Right. Well, the question is, okay, so what do we do about it? And that leads to the question, what is the cause of it? What is the cause of racism? The answer that our culture kind of gives us implicitly is that the cause is racists. The cause is bad people. And it invites us into a posture of judgment that essentially says, if I were one of those people, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't, if I were a cop, I wouldn't be pulling black people out of cars and beating them up and shooting them. I wouldn't shoot an unarmed teenager. Uh, Those are just bad people. It sure seems that way, right? Like, can you imagine yourself doing that? Well, that um, response is an example of what I call the war on evil that's conditioned through films, through culture, 
that that always through medicine, through agriculture, even like it's a it's a it's a template of response that says first find the bad guy and then dominate the bad guy. Find the germ, kill the germ. Find the weed, spray the weed. Find the terrorist, build a wall and keep the terrorist out. Um, find the bad thing in yourself and crush that. Find the racists and stop them. That, yeah, I mean, if you're in a situation where you can intervene and prevent an injustice, then yes, do that. But if you do that in ignorance of the deeper conditions that are generating more and more racism, more and more misogyny, more and more violence, then you're going to be fighting endless war. We have to address the deeper causes as well. Ideally, we will address the problem on multiple levels simultaneously so that the things that we do to stop racist violence here and now will also mitigate the deeper causes of racism. Now, what is racism? Essentially, it's a dehumanization of somebody based on their skin color to, to see you as less than human because of physical characteristics. That would be, I don't know, sort of a definition of racism. So how can you rehumanize people to each other? One way might be to develop forums where stories can be shared and heard to, to maybe bring, you know, inner city gang members together with police and, and, they, and they, they hear each other's stories and understanding develops. Like that, then you're gonna have less police violence and you're also gonna be addressing the dehumanization. If you're coming at it, because like, I'm not really sure what it's like to be a racist police, but I mean, I can imagine, you know, being in the police culture. I can imagine being posted to some place where some, you know, neighborhood where everybody hates you um, and being immersed in a story of the war on drugs, um, having seen Hollywood movies where these, there are like these perps out there, these bad guys out there who are just brutal and inexplicably bad. Like if I'm in, in that entire context and I'm scared, you know, and here's like some kid pulling something out of his pocket. I could imagine, you know, if I've been conditioned in that way, I could imagine shooting somebody, maybe. So if we're serious about changing that, we need to understand what is it like to be the perpetrators? What is the totality of conditions that they are operating from? And how do we change those conditions? If we're serious about changing those conditions, we've got to do that. Otherwise, if we're just going to try to crush those people, discipline those people, hold them to account, et cetera, et cetera, that might be more gratifying, but it isn't going to save, change the problem. It isn't going to change the circumstances. And we're going to be fighting an endless war. Always, and it's gratifying because you get to be on, on team good. But, and, and at some point as an activist, you have to, you're going to be called upon to make a sacrifice, um, the sacrifice of self-righteousness. And you're going to have to decide, okay, am I going to serve being right or am I going to serve healing? Am I going to serve victory or am I going to serve healing? And I think the harder, it's the totality of circumstances point is really profound. Like if you, that belief that if I was in their shoes, I would do something different, which you've showed, which you've argued is false. I think that is like the key. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's compassion. Like what is it like to be you? Yeah. And most abusers were abused themselves. 
I've heard horrific stories. You know, like here's a guy, he's a misogynist. He's making women cry. He's beating them up. How could he? What's wrong with him? And you hear his story. You know, you hear how he was, you know, locked in the closet for three days when he was a kid and made to eat his own vomit, you know, and, and, and beaten bloody, you know. And here's like a three-year-old kid covered in bruises and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the stuff that happens in this world, it's not visible, but it is horrifying. Like the question for me is what does it take to take an innocent little baby and turn him into a monster? And, and it is, I mean, talk about like privilege or arrogance. Like it is the epitome of arrogance to say, ah, oh, well, you know, he's just like that. He's just bad. If that happened to me, I wouldn't. Do you really understand what it's like to grow up like that? Until we understand that and open ourselves to understanding that, nothing is going to change. The revolution is a revolution of compassion. It is letting go of the separate individual self that says, I'm fundamentally different from you. And stepping into the brotherhood and sisterhood of all. We're in this together. If it had happened to me, I might be doing the same thing. I know we're reaching almost time here, maybe a few more. The last question on this thread is, I've often felt like there's no such thing as true as evil, as true evil. It's always circumstance. Like you're not born evil. You sort of have to be conditioned to become what's perceived as evil. I'm curious if you, if you think there's such a thing as true evil. Um, I, I think in terms of story a lot. So there is a story of evil, a story of good versus evil. That story brings you to a certain place and prescribes certain actions and, it, and allows you to see certain things. And it makes other things invisible and other actions seem ridiculous. So the question is, what does this story serve? And is it appropriate today? Or what is it appropriate for? I think that it is no longer appropriate for most things. And a lot of the phenomena that we ascribe to evil um, can only be thus ascribed in ignorance of certain facts, of, of certain data points, let's say. Yet to, to preserve that story, you have to shut out a lot of data points about the world and about yourself. Last two things here. What do you need right now? We often ask the listeners, um, how can people help you grow the, the new story or the next economy? Well, I mean, usually I just say you already know what to do. And when, when we hear about these themes, when, when, when we hear the new story coming into ourselves, uh, it touches something and awakens something or strengthens something. And we come out of it feeling more inspired to act in ways that we kind of knew all along, but maybe now they feel more urgent, more realistic, um, and we feel more capable of them. So like on that level, yeah, I would, I would say that maybe there isn't, maybe like, okay, what should I do now isn't always the right question, but it's more of a trust that I will know what to do. Um, I mean, like for me personally, I've always done kind of almost anti-marketing of my work because I'm like, if people love it enough, they're going to spread the word without me marketing to them, pushing them. Like, I don't want them to do it just because I pushed or asked. Uh, but recently, like an internet marketer 
told me like, Charles, you know, you got to make it a little easier for people. Uh, and it's true that my last book, uh, The More Beautiful World, I feel like it never reached its full audience, you know? Like, I wasn't ever expecting it to sell millions of copies, but um, I think that there are a lot of people who would really benefit from it, um, from the articulation. Like, people, when they read it, they're like, yeah, this put into words what I've always thought and known and made me feel like that I'm not crazy for living in this way. So I guess even though it's been four or five years since that book came out, I feel like, um, yeah, I'll just put that out there that I would like that information to spread. I, I bet Oprah helps. That's, that's a good way to spread it. You'd think that like Oprah would have, like that Oprah thing would have, you know, made it a bestseller, but no, it was like, you know, maybe a 50% uptick for a couple months. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure why. I thought it was a really good, really good show that we did. Great interview. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe it's things don't work the way they used to. Well, the last question is dovetails with your internet marketing piece. How can folks learn more about your work? You know, what's the, what's the name of the new book that people should be looking for? And then is there a website people can go oh, to? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I've got tons of stuff on charleseisenstein.net. Um, I do a podcast. I've got like short films on there, um, interviews, essays, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that would be the place to go. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Charles. Uh, I too recommend Charles's podcast. It's called a new story. No, a new and ancient story. New ancient story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, really. Well, thanks, Ryan. Yeah. I appreciate you being on the show. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.